Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds, and thank you for your tolerance of a few minutes while we waited for some of the uh, cardiology folks to come here after their early morning conference. So we are really delighted today to have Megan Colwright give us Medical Grand Rounds. There are no financial or other uh, conflicts of interest associated with this talk, and she will be introduced to us by the Section Chief in Cardiology, Dr. Edward Catherwood. Thank you, Rich. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Colwright this morning. I first met her a little less than a year ago and was impressed by not only her clinical credentials but also her enthusiasm for what she's going to talk about today. Uh, Megan received her undergraduate education at the University of Wisconsin, followed by medical school at Johns Hopkins, where she also obtained an MPH during her time there at the Bloomberg School. She then joined the internal medicine house staff at Hopkins. Extra year as an advanced fellow in structural heart disease. Uh, she's been recognized as a rising star by the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association. And it's clear that her passion, as she's going to talk about today, involves, in no small measure, issues around shared decision-making in cardiovascular medicine. Uh, she's written a number of peer-reviewed articles. Uh, she continues to collaborate uh, with multiple centers, including folks back at Mayo, has been mentored by Rick Nishimura, David Holmes, and others. And it's a real pleasure to have her joining us as the newest faculty member in cardiology and another uh, important family addition to the Upper Valley. So. Megan, welcome to the Upper Valley, to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and to Medicine Grand Rounds. Thank you, Dr. Catherwood, and thank you all for coming this morning. So let's start with the patient. You're at clinic, and a farmer comes to see you with chest pain. He's been having this for about a year. Every time he goes to work out in the fields, he gets the chest pain with exertion. It goes away with rest. And he wants to know what are the choices available to him and how might he weigh those choices. So as Dr. Catherwood said, I'm Megan Coyle, right? Um, this is my first week at Dartmouth-Hitchcock officially. And uh, already have been very impressed with the teams that, are, um, that I'll be partnering with in the cath lab clinically, as well as uh, in the field of shared decision making, which is the research that I focus a lot of my time on. So let's talk about that patient, the farmer that comes in to see you. What are his ideas about what the benefits of therapy might be? Well, for a lot of patients who have chest pain, which is stable angina, there are some misconceptions about what that means. A lot of them think that that means they're on the cusp of having a heart attack. This is the farmer that came to your clinic, and I'll include a couple of videos today, and all of the patients that are included provided consent to have their videos shown at forums such as this to help spread the word about this type of decision making. But this is what he asks me at the beginning of the visit. Okay, now, when I was active and it hurt, could that, could that have killed me? So he was really worried that the stable angina he'd been having for a year was actually a sign that perhaps there was an impending heart attack, perhaps he could die from this. And like many of the farmers in Rochester, Minnesota, where I first did this research, it took his wife, who's present with him, prodding him to come to the doctor. So I have no financial disclosures, and I will discuss some off-label use of devices and discuss investigational devices during this talk. 
Our learning objectives are to talk about the benefits and limitations of shared decision making in patients with stable angina that's represented in the current literature and some recent research that I've done. We'll then talk about the role of clinician and patient in shared decision making that occurs during a visit, and I'll use the example of severe aortic stenosis. And at the end, we'll talk a little bit about some disease conditions that may benefit from shared decision making uh, that are up and coming. And there's still seats in the front for those of you that are in the back, particularly those of you that know me well, like my fellows right up here. <laughs> so here's an informed consent document for coronary angiography at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And I bring this slide up to demonstrate that we won't be talking about informed consent today, although some of the elements are very similar. Shared decision-making, which I'll explain more throughout the talk, is a process in which we make a decision. So typically we show this to patients once we've already decided that they're going to go for angiogram and they've decided that they would undergo a stent if needed. So this is a little bit different. Let's go back to that farmer again who said, who wondered if that chest pain would actually kill him and what the benefit of a stent might be. So this study, which was done in 2010 by Michael Rothberg, asked patients with stable disease, like the gentleman we saw, same pain for a year, what's the benefit of getting a stent in your coronary artery? And most of the patients thought, patients are in red, that it would reduce their mortality and prevent MI. Now in 2007, the COURAGE trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine helped solidify actually years of data and studies that had shown that for stable angina, there's no difference in heart attack or death compared to medical therapy. There is benefit in symptom relief. Patients who get a stent may feel better faster. But there's a lag time in terms of patients understanding this, and certainly that would influence their decision-making. <clears throat> this is so important that cardiologists have put this in their guidelines. You know, patients need to know the different risks and benefits and understand the limitations of therapy. And in fact, the ACC and others recommend a shared decision-making approach for this. But what does that look like? What tools do we use? How is it measured? What are the quality measures of shared decision-making? None of this has been defined. So we suggest it's important, but there's more research that's needed in order to tell us how to do this. Well, what kind of research is that? Because we're used to the COURAGE trial in the New England Journal of Medicine, a randomized controlled trial testing two therapies. Well, what is this type of research? So I just want to put it in a continuum for you. Up here is where we have randomized controlled trials. Then we put those together in systematic reviews. They then go into research synthesis, which often will end up in guidelines, particularly in cardiology. We do have a lot of guideline-driven therapy. It comes down to the clinic, evidence-based medicine, the, the body of information we use to explain to patients the risks and benefits. Then we go into quality improvement, which is can we actually apply these in the clinical setting? We know them to be true, but are we applying them? And finally, at the end, does the patient agree to this? Do they act on it? Can they adhere to it? That's where our research and shared decision-making lies. A long way down from the randomized trial, but arguably very important because that's actually where these decisions will be enacted. So we did some research on shared decision-making and stable angina, and I'm going to walk you through that project just to give you an idea of what this research is like. The first thing to do when you're thinking about it, creating a decision aid for stable angina is to decide <coughs> Where in the clinical care process is that decision being made? Now, sometimes that's very difficult to know. Other times it can be easier. For example, if you have a patient in your internal medicine clinic and they're on statin therapy for primary prevention, we've got some good decision aids around that, you could actually revisit that decision at any time. 
at perhaps every visit, depending upon the interest of the patient. But for decisions where we're deciding between medical therapy, transcatheter procedures, and surgery, which is my realm, then it's harder to define when that decision is going to take place. So let's talk about it for stable angina. Farmer comes in the primary care doctor, gets a stress test, stress test is abnormal, sends them to the cardiologist. Here's the first spot where shared decision making could take place. You notice we don't know the coronary anatomy yet, but we're already talking with patients at that point about, about the options available. Another option would be in the prep area of the cath lab, and in fact, some decision tools have been introduced in this stage. Diagnostic cath occurs, we could have a pause, and the patient could go back to the cardiologist and talk about the decision. That does sometimes happen for patients with three vessel disease who have a choice between surgery and stenting. However, when there's a choice between medical therapy and stent, often we don't take that pause. It's called ad hoc PCI, and it's one of the few times in medicine where the diagnostic test is linked to the treatment. It's a little bit unusual. You wouldn't go for a mammogram and come out with a lumpectomy. There'd be decision-making in between. But in this case, because of a wide variety of reasons, um, some patient-driven, some provider-driven, some healthcare system-driven, we often don't pause. So for that reason, we decided to test this decision aid upstream. We don't know the coronary anatomy yet. But as cardiologists, we're already having this discussion with patients. If this, then we could do that. If we find this, we could do that. So it's something that we're already used to. We made an active decision not to use the decision aid in the prep area of the cath lab. Not when the patients are in a gown, flat on their back, getting ready for procedure. We did it in the clinic. Once we decided where in the flow of care, we then had to develop a tool. One of the most difficult challenges in decision aids is developing that initial prototype based on the literature. We have to vet the literature, figure out which studies have bias, figure out which studies are most relevant to the patient population we're studying, just like you do with evidence-based medicine. Which study am I going to use? Would my patient have fit the inclusion criteria? This is challenging and controversial when we come out with the final decision aid of what studies we chose. Once we have that initial prototype, we go into the clinic and we test it. We watch clinicians use the decision aid with patients. And I'll tell you, those first few are terrible. Clinicians are reading the words, the patients don't understand the graphs. It's really a learning process. And in fact, for this decision aid, we went through 25 iterations before we came to a point of saturation where every time the doc would use the decision aid, the same elements of the conversation would be present in different flavors because everybody has different ways of explaining things. But the prompts in the decision aid would bring up certain elements of the conversation and patients understood what was presented. Once we reach that point now, we're ready to test the decision aid and we published this process. So this is the final decision aid. There's two iterations. One is for class one to two stable angina. That means it takes some level of exertion to bring on their symptoms. Class three angina means with normal activity, they're going to have chest pain. So there's different outcomes for those two groups. So we separated those out. And this first page, this is the most words you'll see, because otherwise clinicians like to read this, which is not ideal. The first page just identifies that there's a choice to be made. So when we observed usual care, that was one of the things that was missing. Patients actually many times did not know there was a choice to be made during that visit. Now, starting out here, you'll notice that this decision aid, this is actually a paper decision aid. And it doesn't come on a computer, it doesn't come on an iPad, and we don't enter patient information for personalized risk. We've tested all of those things. 
And what we found was it created huge barriers for clinicians to engage in shared decision making. They had to enter creatinine and hemoglobin. If they had to log into a website or remember to bring an iPad in versus just slipping the paper right in the envelope before they walked into the clinic visit. And this is important because we met with patients and asked them, would it matter to you if we expressed a difference in bleeding risk between 1.2% and 3.6% regarding your decision? And those things weren't critical. So we opted to simplify in order to engage clinicians. This is the meat of the decision aid where a lot of the data is. This is where we spend a lot of time, no difference in heart attack or death. The patients that we saw in the study had already seen an outside internist an outside cardiologist, and then came to us in interventional cardiology, and they still were shocked by this. Did the other docs not tell? No, they told them. I'm sure they did. But sometimes it takes uh, some additional tools to get messages through to patients who've been told for years, chest pain, emergency department. Now suddenly you're telling me it's not dangerous? I, you know, I don't know about this. So it's not that we don't do a good job explaining these things to patients. We do a very good job. It's just that we could probably do better. Then we talk about quality of life data. And I'll walk you through what the conversation looks like for something like this. We've, and depending on the patient, a lot of times I'll cover up the other graphs, so we're just looking at one. Of 100 patients like you, those in blue will feel better with medicines alone. Those in orange, the extra 10, will need a stent in order to feel better. And those in gray are not really feeling better with either alone. This is quality of life data from Courage brings up a lot of good questions that we would see. What about the gray? What does that mean? I might not feel better. We talk about atypical symptoms, and it brings up a lot of good things. We focus on at a year. At one year, those in blue will feel better with medicines alone. That additional orange dot means that person needed a stent to feel better. So it takes a while for patients on medicine to catch up to the benefit of stent for symptoms, and that's because you have to titrate the medicines. And for many patients, that helped them understand. A lot of my farmers would say, I don't have time to do that. I've got harvest in three weeks. I need to feel better now. I understand it won't save my life, but I prefer a stent for symptom relief, which is reasonable. Others would say, wow, if I can avoid an invasive procedure, that would be my preference. Let's try the medicines. So we'd ask, based upon the benefits, which choice do you prefer? And only at that point, if they were interested in stenting, we'd then go on to the risks. The risks of procedure and the risks after the stent. So many patients would come to our lab not having heard about dual antiplatelet therapy and the risk of bleeding. A lot of them didn't know about stent thrombosis. The risks are small, but patients uh, value those differently. More about the details <coughs> of the study now that I've shown you the decision aid. We randomized 132 patients who were considering the decision between PCI and medical therapy for stable angina, 18 months to recruit that many patients to randomize. We had informed consents of patients and clinicians, because clinicians were in the study too. In fact, all the visits were videotaped so that we could accurately measure whether shared decision-making had taken place. And we used that decision aid in visit delivered by a clinician. The decision aid was not designed to be consumed by a patient alone. They needed to have a, a doctor go through it with them so that those elements of the conversation were present in each visit. So which clinicians were involved? Mostly non-invasive cardiologists upstream. We had a good number of interventional cardiologists. And then we also included our highly trained interventional cath lab nurses who are very familiar with the risks and benefits <coughs> of the procedure and the important elements of the decision. And they would partner with the referring provider in that setting. And that's something that we're actually looking further into as part of this study, the role of highly trained nurses in the delivery of decision aids. 
We were power detect a 25% difference in knowledge. We looked at decisional conflict. Did the decision match with the patient's values and preferences? And we used a post-visit survey, which looked like this. So I'll direct your attention to A. Were they able to accurately answer? Getting a stent for stable coronary artery disease will reduce my risk of heart attack? And of course, the answer was it won't. So these were older patients. Most of them actually had class one to two angina. So they really had to exert themselves to have angina. And surprisingly, most of them were only on one anti-anginal medication. We had a lot of economic and educational diversity in the study. And in fact, we were biased towards the null hypothesis because we had more college graduates than the usual care group. Having done this in Rochester, Minnesota, I did not have racial diversity in the study, but uh, we did have some differences between patients. Primary outcome, were we able to increase knowledge? So very similar to that Rothberg study, 29% in the usual care group understood that getting a stent for stable angina would not reduce their risk of heart attack or death. They've seen an internist, they've seen a cardiologist, Sometimes they've seen an outside interventional cardiologist, and then they come to see us and our usual care. They don't understand it. So it's, it's pretty complicated, some of the misconceptions of why that might be there, because we know that we're talking to them about it. But we are able to significantly improve patient knowledge with use of the decision aids as compared to usual care. What did patients think? You know, we do really well in regular visits but only 67% strongly recommended the way that they received information. With the decision aid, overwhelmingly, they would recommend to other patients the same way that they got the information that day, through a decision aid. Patients love decision aids. They felt more informed, as well as being more knowledgeable, and fewer were undecided after the visit. Now, people are usually really curious. Did you reduce the number of patients choosing stents? Are we going to be able to show that we can move more patients towards conservative therapy? This is a really hot topic in shared decision making. Are we going to be able to take patients who are going, undergoing procedures and get them to choose medical therapy? And the evidence in this study, as well as across the literature, is inconclusive. We don't know that that's the case. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that the goal? of bringing a decision aid to patients that we will get them to choose one therapy over another? And I would argue no. The goal is that we match the right therapy to the right patient. So we did not see a statistically significant reduction in stent use. There's maybe some trends, but the two were pretty similar. Those who were undecided might have moved over into the medical ther therapy group, but otherwise the rates of stents were pretty similar. Now we looked a little closer, looked at a small group of the patients that were on two or more antianginals. So we have really four antianginal classes that we can use. <laughs> Those that were on two, they've already tried a number. Usually we think you should just go straight to stent after that time. You don't necessarily want to try more medications. But for those patients with the decision aid, they actually felt they had now permission to try more medications. So that's hypothesis generating. It's not significant, it's a small group, but interesting to look at. So there are benefits and limitations to shared decision-making for stable angina. We don't know that it reduces procedures, therefore we don't know that it reduces costs, but it does improve patient knowledge and patients are much more satisfied with the decision-making process with the use of a decision aid. And that's what we know right now about stable angina decision aids. So what about this farmer? After we went through the decision aid together, what did he say? I would prefer to go with the medicine. If you get in there and you feel it needs a stint for whatever reason you think, we'll put one in there. 
I thought that comment was very illustrative. First of all, I was surprised you chose medicines because I've had so many other gentlemen want to move forward with PCI because of their active needs. But shared decision making is not abandonment. I don't ask him to decide whether he should have a stent based on the anatomy. I just need to know his values and preferences. He would prefer not to have an invasive procedure. He'd like to use medicines. But as his interventionist, I ultimately have to decide based on the anatomy. And so we partner in that. We'll talk a little bit more in the next example about the role of patient and clinician in shared decision making. Now, we do a very good job doing our, during our regular visits, but Glenn Elwin here at Dartmouth wrote an interesting paper about a decade ago that looked videotaped visits. Are clinicians doing the elements of shared decision making? And over 70% of the time, we missed one of these. We didn't portray that there were multiple options. We didn't list them, explain the pros and cons, and we didn't explore the patient expectations or their values and preferences. On our best days, we probably do these. But we're not always at our best. Sometimes we're tired, sometimes we're very busy, and I would argue that a tool can help us, prompt us to do those things at more visits. As I mentioned, we don't have evidence that we're going to reduce cost with decision aids, and this is a meta-analysis that was just done from this group here at Dartmouth um, this year, published in BMJ. So why would we use decision aids? It's not just in stable angina. This was a systematic review of 115 randomized controlled trials of shared decision making. You might not have even known there was that much literature out there. And the caveat, it's a very heterogeneous group. It's not all cardiology by any means. But it does show that patients are more involved, they're more knowledgeable, and with a bit of practice, the clinic visit doesn't actually change in length. In fact, it can help focus that discussion so you're not talking about all sorts of different things. Decisional conflict, that is, the decision matching with the patient and values and preferences was down, which is good. Less people were undecided and a consistent message. We, we're not sure yet how this impacts patient choice, adherence, or costs. So that's what we know of the current literature of shared decision making. Let's transition a minute to talk a little bit more about the role of the clinician and the patient in a shared decision-making visit. So this is a little bit different. The decision aids that I create are not used upstream. They're used during the visit to prompt that discussion, to create a conversation between patients and clinicians. So we'll give an example of this to kind of hone in more on that topic. This is Mr. Jones. He's an 87-year-old man who comes in with new dyspnea on exertion. His heart failure is so bad, it's like out of a textbook. I can't lay flat, I have to sit up, lean over the bed, I'm huffing and puffing. I feel short of breath in the middle of the night. So he's got really bad symptoms, but they're new in the last six months. Prior to that, he'd been completely healthy. In fact, he lives in Vermont, he has a wood-burning stove, he's carrying the wood in all the time. Very independent guy, now severely limited. Independence is threatened. And he's lost a lot of weight. So he had a workup of that to make sure that it wasn't cancer or some other comorbidity causing this. But it turns out it was due to his severe heart failure. And he has severe aortic stenosis. This is what's causing him to be so sick. So I'm going to introduce you a little bit more to him. But first, I just want to reiterate what you all know. Severe aortic stenosis, when it come, becomes symptomatic like that, is a deadly disease. At one year, half will be dead. Now, we do know that there are ways to treat severe aortic stenosis, but it's not with medical therapy. Traditionally, it's been surgical aortic valve replacement. And for patients like this gentleman, who's a bit cachectic and 87, we may not have pursued surgical aortic valve replacement, but we have new options available for our high-risk elderly patients. 
And transcatheter aortic valve replacement is one that's been quite promising. This is from 2010, the early partner study data for inoperable patients. So in blue is standard therapy, talking about death and a big reduction in mortality. Rare that you would see a study with that big of a difference in mortality. So transcatheter aortic valve replacement for properly selected patients can be life-saving. And that's typically what we'll focus on. A randomized controlled trial, improvement of mortality, that's what we're going to focus on and talk to patients about. But for a lot of these patients, living longer may not be one of their goals. They may want to live better or have more time with family or be able to do a certain hobby. These are things that we're actually looking at in our database that was started by Roseanne Palmer, who's our TAVR coordinator. How can we figure out how to prioritize what the patient values are? Now, for this particular patient, an 87-year-old with no other comorbidities, his, expected, his life expectancy at 87 is five years. So he actually prioritizes living longer. So listen to what he says about this when I show him the data for high-risk patients, not inoperable, because he could undergo surgery, around mortality. At 30 days, most people will still be alive, but they won't be feeling as good. At two years, only 30 people will be alive. No good. You gotta sit out. Okay. <laughs> I was a little surprised by that, because a lot of our um, elderly patients say, I don't want to live longer necessarily, but he knows. He's got a lot left in him. <coughs> so this is the type of decision that is perfect for shared decision making. And I want to be clear, a lot of decisions in medicine are not appropriate for it, where you as the physician have to guide the patient. There's, not, there's no equipoise. So this decision is preference sensitive. He can value mortality. He can value quality of life. He can want to avoid an invasive procedure. All of these are reasonable. And I can't tell him which he should value more. So if there are valid treatment options, surgery, transcatheter valve, or medical therapy, it'd be reasonable to present those to him. There's some equipoise there. There's a trade-off of risks and benefits. There's a number of non-preference sensitive. If the weight of the evidence really favors one option, we should share that with patients and say, you know, there's, this really is the option I would recommend for you. My patients that come in with a STEMI typically is not a shared decision-making procedure. A 3-5 versus 4-0 stent, not reasonable to talk to patients about. There's lots of examples in your practice. So we're not asking patients to weigh in on every decision, just those where it matters how they value those benefits or those risks of the procedure. So I talked to him about that. Clearly, he values living longer. So medical therapy is not a, an option for him. But he also really values quality of life. He is a dancer. He used to dance all, you know, multiple times per week. And he would love to get back to that. And it's interesting how he communicates that during the visit. So he starts out saying, I love to dance. I love to dance. Yep. And I know that's not important as the rest of the things, but it would be nice if I could get back to half of the dancing that they did. There's a lot of important things there in that comment. First of all, he's sharing something very personal about how important this aspect of his life is to him. And he's a little bit nervous. Is the doctor going to think that that's important compared to living longer? Wh which is more important? And so validating that. Well, this is like the most important thing. This is what, what you live for. And then, uh, you know, he goes on further to say, I want to just get back to even half of what I can. So sometimes patients share their goals, and it's not reasonable. That even with the valve, they're not going to be dancing again if they're, you know, limited by rheumatoid arthritis and have other comorbidities. 
So it's helpful to say that's a reasonable goal and we should be able to accomplish that with the therapies we're talking about. In fact, we have a lot of choices now available to us. So these are some of the new valves that are available that are delivered in different ways and I'm just gonna focus on a couple. This is the valve that we're offering now here at Dartmouth. The Sapien XT, it's the second generation transcatheter aortic valve replacement. It comes in a smaller delivery system and we see really big benefits with this. There's less vascular complications. There's actually less risk of stroke uh, over time with use of this device. We're just on the cusp of offering Edward Sapien 3, which is the newest model, and uniquely is being offered to intermediate risk patients. So we're expanding the indications which are available to patients, which in my mind just means more shared decision making, different decision aids, because the risks are really different. Also clinically available are some other styles of aortic valve replacements, the core valve, and then these others are in studies currently. Um, this model is actually delivered surgically, uh, but has similar design. So these are the two that, uh, this one available now and this one soon here at Dartmouth for patients. So part of the shared decision-making process is education. This is complex. I mean, this field is moving so fast. So some of the education occurs beforehand with our nursing staff and the rest of our team, videos, booklets, but a little of it comes out during the shared decision-making visit. So it's not to say this isn't patient education. It's just that typically we'll try to load that up front so we can focus on the values and preferences and describing the risks and benefits. But here you can see him starting to understand about the type of procedure we're doing. Is the valve under the valve that's not functioning properly? It pushes the old valve to the side. Okay. So that understanding helps him come to a decision. But I would argue that knowledge is not power for patients. We can actually explain the procedure you know, to the greatest extent, we can have the you know, highest technology videos and booklets, but when they walk into the room with that cardiac surgeon or that interventional cardiologist, if that clinician is not ready to engage the patient in shared decision making, I would argue that patient doesn't have a chance. And in fact, uh, part of our group here uh, did describe this in a systematic review of 44 studies. They showed it's not that patients won't participate, it's that they can't. So when my colleagues say to me, well, I think, you know, Megan, that sounds good. You know, shared decision making, I'm not gonna argue that that's not a good thing, but my patients don't really want it. They say to me, you decide, doctor. I didn't go to medical school. And that, we do hear that quite a bit, but I would argue that if we invite patients into that discussion and tell them, you're not deciding which size valve, you're not deciding which choices are available to you, that's my job. I need to know about how you value the different options available to you and then I can help you make that decision. And we all do that all the time. That's what we're trained to do as physicians. But I just would argue we could do it a little bit better. There's that large, large barrier. There's a power imbalance in our relationship. And so sometimes these tools can help bring uh, those two people together. Two experts actually. An expert in the data and the procedures and an expert in values and preferences those two experts coming together around something like a decision aid can help shared decision making take place. So the decision aids that I'm describing today, they're just one way to do shared decision making. There's lots of different ways to do it. This is just one model, but it's designed to facilitate a conversation. And it's not designed for patients to read alone. And while nurses and uh, other support staff can help, ultimately the clinician who's deciding with the patient will need to come together. The data presentation is very specific. There's natural frequencies. So we're going to say rather than a 50% reduction, we'll say two out of 100 compared to four out of 100. And the research has shown that helps patients weigh those decisions. And most patients in the literature when asked 
prefer this model for future visits once they've seen it. Once they've undergone shared decision making with decision aids, they prefer it in the future. Even our elderly patients. So in severe aortic stenosis, our average age is about 85 for patients being considered for transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Is that a different generation? One that would prefer more of a parental style of decision making? Well, we looked at that. Seven randomized trials of decision aids, and we looked at the sociodemographics, and they were efficacious across age, gender, income, education. All sorts of different patients can benefit from this. Let's talk about the decision aid we're going to be testing now here at Dartmouth and with some of our national partners. So this is a decision aid designed for Mr. Jones. This one here is for someone like him. He could undergo surgery. He's a reasonable candidate. He's high risk, but he could undergo. And uh, after much debating during that process, remember I showed you that iteration of going through, we had a lot of discussion. Is there equipoise? If we offer him symptom management, we know that his ability to um, live well and live long is very poor. However, different 87-year-olds um, really value invasive procedures differently. So we did end up including it. For him, it was easy. Cast it out, he said. Well, we'll just move on to the other two choices, so that makes it easier. Transcatheter aortic valve replacement, it is a newer procedure, just FDA approved in 2011, although it's been in trial here since 2008 and in Europe since 2003. And this is quality of life data from our partner study, which is the largest study for aortic stenosis patients that we're modeling here, and we talked to them. This is a prompt to talk about what's recovery like and how is it different. This is one of the elements that was missing in some of the usual care visits. Other things that we see when we're testing decision aids in the development stage, you see how there's a time axis here? Originally, we had time markers on there, one year, two year, based on the, the most uh, applicable evidence. Clinicians didn't care for that. They wanted to be able to say to their patient, this for you will be about six months. So these decision aids are supposed to be modifiable so that you can apply the data to your patient, but to make sure you hit those high points. So surgery is the other choice. On the next page, blue, again, this is a fold out like this, so you're missing that left side, so I'll guide you through it. Blue is medical therapy. This is what I was showing him. He did not like that picture. Now. Interestingly, most of our patients said, you don't need to include survival. We called it mortality at first. They said, why would you call it mortality? How long am I going to survive? But their kids did. The adult children of our patients wanted that data in there. And this was unique. So for this decision aid, now we're creating it for the family. So every decision aid is a little different depending upon the clinical situation. So you can see for transcatheter aortic valve replacement, there is a slight difference in survival at 30 days, because there is some operative mortality with surgery. But at two years, the data shows there's no difference between the two. And then there's many differences between these therapies with regards to benefit and risk. The obvious one is that most patients know, I don't want my chest cut open. But it's a lot more nuanced than that. Early data on transcatheter valves suggested there was a higher risk of stroke. The newest data, which is changing quickly as the systems become smaller and smaller, like Sapien 3, which I described to you, which is a much smaller system, the risk of stroke and other vascular complications is dropping fast. So I can modify that. Early on in our experience, these were some of our rates. Our rates here at Dartmouth are, and we can fill that in verbally, but it prompts me to talk about that. And we list other possible complications. We have a second decision aid. This one is for patients that actually do not have a choice of surgery. They're inoperable. I'm not going to show them the decision aid with that option below if I, as their physician, don't think they qualify. So 
So these are the only two options available. Now I talk a lot more about palliative care. And I know I have some of my palliative care and geriatrician colleagues here. And it's important that this option is not abandonment, but that we're very clear. This is the plan of what we would do. This is how we'd take care of you and make you feel better, because that's a good option for some of those patients. And then the data is different. These patients are much higher risk. More of them have uh, passed on at two years. The risks of stroke are higher, so we model that. Again, with this decision aid, we trialed entering individual patient data. We trialed it on an iPad, a sign-in sheet on a computer, all the ways that you can probably think of, oh, it would be cool if we could do this and this. And each clinical situation is different. Sometimes those work really well. For this particular decision aid, just having the paper and the patients love to take that home with them, talk to their families about it afterwards. This worked well. So our next steps with this are to focus on something a little bit different than decision aid efficacy. So we've usually looked and said, does it work? Does it increase patient knowledge? Do patients like it? Is patient satisfaction higher? But we find consistently that the answer is yes. It does, yes, every time. So do we need to do another study like that? What we're gonna do here is we're going to tackle the next barrier for shared decision making. These tools work, but are they being used? The answer is no. Why are clinicians not engaged in shared decision-making? There's a lot of different reasons, and it varies based on the disease condition, but that's what we'll be looking at here with our structural heart disease shared decision-making team. How can we lead the nation at Dartmouth by describing successful ways to engage clinicians in shared decision-making? There's, I don't know the answer to that yet. We're gonna try to look into that and figure out. I do have some ideas because for the last two years, we've used this decision aid in a national initiative through the ACC at the 10 top valve centers. And so we've got some ideas, some hypotheses from that initial work that we'll be testing here with the NNE here and nationally also. So I'll just close with a few <coughs> slides. What's on the horizon for structural heart disease? So I'm an interventional cardiologist. I take care of patients who have coronary artery disease, but also patients who have structural and valvular heart disease and transcatheter aortic valve replacement is one of those procedures that we do here at Dartmouth. But there are others on the horizon that are exciting that are perfect for shared decision making. Atrial fibrillation, mitral regurgitation, and stroke. And those are things that you all see all the time. What about AFib? So we published a paper in 2014 in CERC talking about, boy, this condition is perfect. Here you've got a, a um, rhythm disturbance that it's you know, pretty benign, but there's a risk of stroke. Aspirin, Coumadin, novel anticoagulants. What about the patients who are at high risk for bleeding? There's so many options available to patients that it depends on how they weigh them. In fact, there are ways to reduce the risk of stroke in atrial fibrillation that can limit the amount of anticoagulants that patients need. And that's by closing the left atrial appendage, a little pouch that comes off the left atrium. We've been doing that for years in the operating room. Send patients to uh, cabbage for bypass grafting, They've got AFib, we'll close that little pouch off. Now we can do that in a transcatheter procedure. This uh, device is called the Lariat. We do offer that here at Dartmouth. And then the second device is called the Watchman, which is in development now, uh, has been for quite some time, but should be available in the coming future. And would be a, this would be a great condition to use shared decision-making for patients. What about mitral regurgitation? High-risk patients, LV dysfunction, we may not want to send them to surgery. Um, we now have an FDA-approved mitra clip, which creates a double orifice mitral valve, mimicking the alfieri stitch that we can deliver through a vein, 
across the heart at the end of the procedure. They just have that spot in their leg to heal from. Many of these patients will go home one or two days afterwards. Not yet offered here, but something that could be on the horizon is perfect for shared decision making. And how about uh, cryptogenic stroke? So this example would be a 33-year-old woman with kids who has a disabling stroke, no risk factors. TEE shows a PFO. Should that PFO be closed with the idea that she may have had a clot in the leg that then traveled up across the PFO to the brain? Boy, there's little in cardiology that's more controversial than whether this works or not. But yet patients are still asking to have this procedure done. And so it's a perfect uh, ability for us to do shared decision making. And I bring this example up to say, we don't have to know all the answers. We don't have to have all the data to involve patients in decisions. In fact, we don't have all the data and we still have to make a decision. We don't have evidence-based medicine for everything. We do have a lot of studies here that show, well, we don't know if there's a benefit. But a decision aid may help explain that process. This is a helix device, which is delivered again through the vein and closes that PFO and then limits the amount of anticoagulation that patients need for stroke prevention. So those are three um, disease conditions on the horizon that may be good for shared decision making. So just want to review what we've talked about today. We discussed with our farmer, the first case, the benefits and limitations of shared decision making for stable angina. Patients are more knowledgeable, they feel more informed, they're very satisfied. We don't know whether it reduces procedures, but we do know that it can match the right procedure with the right patient. We talked about the roles of clinicians and patients in a shared decision making visit with the decision aid used in visit and how it's a meeting of two experts, one who has all the evidence base and the other talking about their values and preferences. And then at the end, we talked about other heart diseases and structural heart disease that may benefit from this approach. And I use these examples to help, I bet you'll start thinking in my practice, oh, yeah, if I had a decision aid to describe this, you know, these two choices to my patients, I think I could be a bit more effective. So once we start opening the store, I think a lot of options are available to us. I want to introduce our structural heart disease research um, team here that's focused on shared decision making. I think we've got, um, we're, we have a growing team, so this is just actually our beginning list, but we have a lot of talent here. Um, I'm the interventional cardiologist. We have a cardiac surgeon who's involved. We have the Dartmouth Center and the Dartmouth Institute represented and uh, highly trained researchers and nurses that are all focused on shared decision making and structural heart disease. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be at Dartmouth because I can't tell you how different it is to be in an environment where the clinicians are already primed. We know about shared decision making. We've done this for years. We're good at it here. And I think that we have the opportunity to actually lead the nation in shared decision making. There's a lot of places that don't even really understand what it is yet. And we could define it uh, for you know, best practices for involving patients, particularly in a field that's evolving rapidly, in which there are many options available that are preference sensitive. I'm gonna open it up for questions and I appreciate your attention.
thinking about that, I, I think it would be interesting to ask them of those who answered um, who answered uh, yes that, that, that there is a difference to ask them why they answer that. And my suspicion is that uh, it's not because they didn't know what the right answer was because you just told them what the right answer was. My suspicion is that they got the answer wrong because intuitively it didn't make sense to them. And so you know your tool goes over outcome data, which is very important for doctors. But I think the gap is that it doesn't make intuitive sense. If you have a blockage, if you're gonna do a tool, if you're gonna do a procedure where you open the blockage with the tool, intuitively it seems as though that's gotta result in a much better outcome. So I don't know if, if there would be another tool, I mean you talked a little about this later, that you can show videos and you can show cartoons that show anatomy and, and physiology explanation. But I think for that population, particularly in Rochester, you show with a fairly educated population, you're probably going to have to do a better job explaining why, physiologically, come up with an explanation that would make sense to them, that they would actually believe. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of patients really don't just rely on outcome data because they'll say, well, next year you'll show me some different numbers. So you have to explain it in a way that makes sense to them, and then they'll actually it's that they'll, they'll be able to actually make a better decision. That's a great point. There's two things I think you brought up. One is uh, clearly have a lot of insight into shared decision-making research. You do a study, you find out a little bit more about the gaps. The first thing was that my doc said, I told them that. Well, now we know we told them that, and there's still 49% that don't understand. So what are the other gaps? So we have a paper coming out that actually looked at three different verbal explanations of stable disease. Whether you said you had a narrowing, a blockage, or you described somewhat a little bit more about the inflammatory process. And we found that it did matter how you described it. And we all have our little tricks. We all kind of describe, well, it's a, it's a pipe, you know, it's kind of, it's filled with, you know, we all have ways of doing that. But whether or not that that's successful in terms of getting the message across. So you're right. There's a big gap that's left. And so whether that be a video, whether it be cartoons, that's the next step. So there's more work to be done in that area, for sure. If I, if I were a 70-year-old male and come to you having had a stroke, and, it was, and I had a PFO, can you say how the joint decision-making conversation would, would run there, knowing full well that I, that I want that done, uh, and knowing full well that the data says we don't go there? So can you just say how you, how you might so the question is, if you have a patient who's 70 years old and has had a stroke and has a PFO, um, and I purposely brought up the example of a 33-year-old because usually that decision is a little bit more straightforward, and that is there aren't other risk factors for stroke there. So I think the first component of that discussion would need to be about education. That is, I would need to decide as your clinician whether there was equipoise between closing that PFO and using medical therapy. And as age increases and the chances that that stroke is due from some other uh, etiology, that equipoise falls away. So it would depend on the other risk factors. I may not actually engage in shared decision making if I don't think that there's a choice. So, you know, your patients don't get to decide that they can have anything done. It's your job to decide what are the options available. And it's very unusual that we would offer a 70-year-old closure for a PFO for stroke because typically that's probably not the etiology, therefore risk without benefit. 
the large majority of the decision aids that have been developed and those tested in the 120 RCTs in the Cochrane were being designed for before the visit or outside of the visit. So uh, Mayo has been a real leader and relatively unique in developing these in-visit decision aids. And I was wondering um, how your experience was with clinician buy-in and clinician satisfaction with the mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. That's a great question, and you heard me say that that's actually my passion is figuring out how we can engage clinicians, because I feel um, a little bit unsatisfied with the results of, uh, you know, 51% no. Is that enough, especially if my guys aren't going to use the tool at all? So I really feel like one area of research needs to be in clinician engagement. We certainly need to still work on efficacy and how we're going to be able to increase those numbers of knowledge. So uh, clinician engagement is really challenging, and I'll just leave you with um, a, a neat idea that over the last two years as I've um, engaged cardiac surgeons and interventional cardiologists with this particular tool, I use a, a number of different strategies. Department head, the leading cardiac surgeon, a friend of mine interventional cardiologist, so a lot of this, nurse practitioners who are bought in at the beginning, see if they could kind of help it rise up. So a number of different ways that we can evolve them. But once I get into the hands of physicians, it seemed to take four times. It wasn't three, but four. Once they used it with four different patients, they said, ah, Megan, I see what you're talking about. My patients love this. The conversation's more focused. I mean, it was incredible from Cedars-Sinai in LA to Columbia, New York to Emory in Atlanta. There's something about that little learning curve. It's embarrassing to use a tool right away. I don't know how to read this thing. My patient's going to see me fumbling. My colleagues are, you know, it's taking a long time. I don't want to do this. But if we can get over that learning curve, clinicians are able to see through their patients that this is worth it. So that's the research that we're actually embarking on now, is to figure out that and what is that learning curve and how to accomplish that. And there's, I mean, we, we could all, we could, I should have actually had a brainstorming session here. We could all um, think of different ways. Have you ever included an arm where you simply said to the clinician, take 2.5 minutes and get to know your patient? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what that question, what that question reminds me of is, isn't this what we're supposed to do all the time? Isn't that our, just our job as a doctor? Isn't that why we went into medicine, was to know our patients and make decisions on their behalf? And I think that's all true. And I think we do do that. And I think you know a lot yourself, and you know lots of colleagues that are really good at that. I think we could just be a little bit better. Right, no, but I meant specifically, have you considered an arm where you told the clinician, just sit down, and you have this time marked off. I'm giving you a timer. Sure. Um, and to see whether or not that process um, would yield a result similar to or different from having the decision I think that I have not done that as an investigative model. I think it's a good idea. We have seen in our observations of usual care that there are patient or there are doctors who take 65 minutes and know nothing about their patients, and there are doctors who take five minutes and are able to extract that. And I think that there are skills involved that just by giving the docs the time is not enough. And that's why we're also focusing on training from medical school in shared decision making. I think these are, this is a specific skill set. I certainly didn't have it. I felt that I, I felt I knew all my patients, to be honest. 
Well, I can kind of tell what they would want. But we learned from all of our team members different questions that you can ask that make you um, tune into those differences. So I think there is a skill set more than just time, um, but I haven't tested that. Just curious, this is really very interesting, and you really show that you improve the knowledge with these tools, and you also improve satisfaction. But you mentioned right fit, meaning does the right pay, does the patient make the right decision for them? Is there any objective way to get to that comparing using these tools and not, let's say, a two-year follow-up uh, to see if they're thinking still like the choice that they, they made? I'm, I'm just curious if there's an objective way to get at right fit, because that seems to be really the, the, the reason you want to use these tools. I agree with you. The right fit is very important. We think about that in this decisional quality kind of realm, and that's what that decisional conflict score is meant to bring out a bit, although there are other measures that are being modeled here and tested at the Dartmouth Center led by Glenn Elwin, and that is um, really trying to find out if it is the right fit for the patient. So we ask them a series of questions that um, evoke their values and preferences and then how well that decision did match. There are some issues with asking later. If patients have complications from procedures or surgeries, they're pretty convinced that was not the right choice. And so sometimes that it makes it complicated or uh, you know, there are many other kind of uh, biases, but you can look there. It's just as a research model, you need to take all those considerations into play, but there are a lot of qual decisional quality measures in the field of shared decision-making research to try to answer that question. Megan, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm going to jump in on this one. So what is the value of pre-learning? Uh, so we have near universal access to internet for most patients, although they don't all use it. But to increase the knowledge that was alluded to earlier about understanding more of the pathophysiology in layman's terms, but coming in, and many patients do come in, and they see information that's either good or bad that they've looked at, but what's the impact of that prior to engaging in a then shared event? I would say two things about that. One is it would be really helpful if we could control the information that they had for their, sometimes they're not even reading about the right disease. But you, you all already know that because mm -hmm. you, you handle that all the time. I think uh, the most important thing is that if we want to engage clinicians, which is my focus, so I'll answer it from that, we need to make sure that that discussion doesn't take more time and can be focused. So if I go into a visit with a patient with severe aortic stenosis and I have to define that disease and I have to tell them what transcatheter aortic valve replacement is in detail, I do not have time to ask them about their values and preferences. So if we want to engage uh, clinicians, particularly for very complex procedures, we need to make sure that work is already done. So I think that's part of the benefit is that patients are primed. They're not ready to tell me we're going to engage in shared decision making. I made that point today. I don't think that they can direct it among, like across the nation. I don't think patient advocacy groups are going to be able to tell patients to do this. In fact, sometimes that backfires. As uh, we had our recent summit here and a patient stood up and said, I tried to make my clinician do that and then suddenly I was the bad patient. So I do think we need to prime the patients and prime the clinicians so that when they come together in that visit, that it is the meeting of the two experts and they're ready for that discussion. Maybe you want time for one more question? Sure. Okay. I'm, I'm always concerned about physician bias, particularly in a shared decision encounter. And um, I can see that there may be a slight bias between interventional cardiologists and general cardiologists. How do you control for that? Do you administer your tools to the uh, provider as well as the patient to see what biases or 
thoughts the provider has ahead of time? Mm -hmm. Those are good questions and certainly something we could look at in a systematic manner. There's some thought that perhaps the decision tools help limit the differences because they're everybody seeing that same data. That said, you could have someone say, did you see that orange dot? That's going to be you. You're going to be the one that's feeling better. <laughs> so I think ultimately we do the best that we can, but it's something interesting to look at, particularly in terms of where in the flow of care the decision aids should be used. Well, Megan, we were delighted to learn from you today, and we are delighted that you're part of us now. So thank you very much. Thank you.